This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was lying on the table, a small baggie filled with white powder. Rick stared at it in disbelief. $50 and you're in, his friend said. Rick thought about the movie Superfly, urban black men becoming wealthy beyond their wildest dreams, buying cars, boats, houses, all from dealing cocaine. He rarely partook in any vices, but he was too curious to pass this up. He rolled up a dollar bill and sampled a line. Ironically, Rick wouldn't feel the usual high from the infamous drug. He didn't enjoy it at all. He was enamored with cocaine for a totally different reason. In a few short years, Rick Ross would become one of the most successful drug traffickers in United States history, and Los Angeles would never be the same. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. Today, we're going to dive into the life of the notorious Los Angeles kingpin, Freeway Rick Ross, the man considered responsible for the 1980s crack epidemic. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode... The best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. For roughly 10 years, no one in the United States had more control over the crack market than Rick Ross. No rival dared to take him on. And it was all because he made a deal with the devil in early 1984. The devil's name was Danilo Blandon. He was a Nicaraguan drug trafficker with ties to the Contras, a right-wing revolutionary group from his home country. More importantly, 
Danilo also had ties to Colombian drug cartels. He offered to hook Rick up with pure Colombian cocaine for a 50% lower price than his other suppliers. Rick had a decision to make, and it wasn't a difficult one. Rick was already the top man in Los Angeles, but if he agreed to work with Danilo, he would be the undefeatable champion. As soon as Rick started working with Danilo, he went from selling a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of cocaine a day to selling two to three million dollars. His empire stretched across the entire United States. Los Angeles, Seattle, Miami, New York City, Kansas City, Cincinnati, Atlanta, Detroit. If someone was smoking crack, it was probably because of Freeway Rick Ross. And when those customers started overdosing in droves, the blood was on Rick's hands. His name will always be synonymous with a tumultuous era in American history, the 1980s crack epidemic. It'll also be synonymous with another infamous American scandal, the Iran-Contra affair. Rick had no idea that the man he scored his cocaine from was also a key link between the CIA and the Nicaraguan Contras. When Rick Ross started dealing cocaine, he was dreaming of the glitz and glamour of drug lords he saw in the movies. He never could have imagined he'd find himself caught in the middle of two of the biggest crises of the 1980s. Like many a kingpin, Rick Ross came from humble origins. He was born on January 26, 1960, in Troop, Texas. Texas was still stuck in the era of Jim Crow, despite the efforts of the Civil Rights Act. So when he was five, Rick and his mother Annie Mae moved to Los Angeles looking for better opportunities. His father stayed behind in Texas. Unfortunately, Annie Mae and Rick arrived in L.A. just as the city was burning due to the Watts riots. For five days in August 1965, L.A. descended into chaos after an argument between a black motorist and an LAPD officer split open the city's racial tensions. Days after the riots ended, five-year-old Rick scoured the burnt-down buildings, looking for stray cans of food to eat. Upon arriving in California, Rick and Annie Mae moved in with Annie Mae's brother George and his wife, Bobby Joe. Rick looked up to Uncle George as a father figure. He loved to ride around in George's 63 Buick and see movies at the drive-in together. But George had a mean temper, especially when he was drunk, which was all the time. Rick says that when he was six, he lost his innocence after a violent encounter with his uncle. One evening in 1966, George came home from a night of drinking and accused his wife, Bobby Joe of seeing other men. Bobby Joe protested that the accusations were completely unfounded, but George didn't believe her. He went into the kitchen, grabbed a knife, and stabbed her several times. Rick's mother, Annie May, found a pistol. She threatened to shoot George if he didn't stop. George looked into his sister's eyes and saw that she was serious. He dropped the knife and walked out the door. They knew he wouldn't stay gone for long. Annie Mae put the pistol in her pocket and took Bobby Joe and Rick to a friend's house where they tended to Bobby Joe's wounds. 
but soon there was pounding on the door. Uncle George had managed to find them. He demanded to see his wife. When no one answered, he kicked in the door and found everyone hiding in the kitchen. After some arguing, Bobby Joe caved and agreed to go back home with George. But Annie May had a different idea. She tried to stop Bobby Joe from leaving, which only made George angrier. He came charging towards his sister. Little Rick watched as his mother shot his uncle in the chest. George fell to the ground, dead. Annie May was arrested, but since the killing was in self-defense, no charges were brought against her. The family rarely spoke about George after the incident. But watching his mother kill another family member would stay with Rick for the rest of his life. Not long after Uncle George's death, Rick, along with his mother, aunt, and cousins, moved into a house on 87th and Flower, just near the 110 freeway. It's believed that this house was where his nickname, Freeway Rick, originated. Within a week of moving in, Rick met his best friend and future business partner, Ollie Biglock Newell. Rick and Ollie lived on the same block, and even though Rick was in fourth grade and Ollie was in second, the two quickly became friends. Rick had troubles in school throughout his entire academic career. Despite attending classes regularly since kindergarten, he was completely illiterate. His inability to focus led him to act out constantly, and instead of helping him learn, his teachers just passed him along from year to year. By the early 70s, Rick was at Bret Hart Middle School and still totally unable to read. Between the typical problems of adolescence and his academic struggles, Rick had all sorts of justified reasons to fear moving up to middle school. But what really terrified Rick was that his new school was home to a vicious gang called the 92nd Street Crips. The Crips formed during the late 60s and 70s as a result of the economic hardships within the black community. Unemployment shot up after the Watts riots in 1965. Factories and stores were shut down in the wake of the violence. Many people lost their jobs, and poverty and crime became rampant. The first gang to spring up was the Crips in South Central in 1969. Not long after that, their rivals, the Bloods, formed in Compton. The future of these two gangs would be long and bloody, and Rick was about to enter the heart of the conflict. Rick never became an initiated member of the Crips, but a few of his friends from elementary school, including his best friend Ollie, joined the gang as soon as they entered middle school. That friendship was all it would take to put Rick in the blood's crosshairs. One day, while putting his books away in his locker, preteen Rick turned around and was staring down the barrel of a 38. Rick froze. He recognized the man behind the gun as a member of the Denver Lanes, a gang affiliated within the Bloods. He knew about the rivalry between the Bloods and the Crips, and now he was experiencing that violence firsthand. Rick had no idea why it was happening. He thought he was going to die simply for being friendly with the Crips. But for reasons Rick himself could never explain, the man walked away and spared him. 
When Rick got home, he vowed that he would never have anything to do with gang life. Around the time of this incident, Rick realized he had a natural talent for tennis. He devoted himself to the sport, partially as an excuse to stay out of gang life. He idolized Arthur Ashe, the only black man to win Wimbledon, the Australian Open, and the U.S. Open. By around eighth grade, Rick's tennis skills caught the eyes of the coach at Dorsey High School. Despite his continued inability to read, Rick graduated from Bret Hart Middle School and was soon playing tennis for Dorsey. Rick didn't care one iota about education, but he knew college was the surest path to success. His dream was to finish high school and go to Cal State Long Beach on a tennis scholarship. Throughout all four years of high school, Rick hid his illiteracy by acting out and refusing to do his classwork. He'd rather be known as the class clown than the idiot who never learned to read. As always, instead of working with Rick, his teachers just kept passing him up to the next grade, happy to get him out of their hair. During his senior year in 1978, Rick met with his tennis coach to discuss his plans for the future. He told his coach he wanted to go to Cal State on a tennis scholarship, which, with his tennis skills, wasn't out of reach. Rick's coach asked him what major he wanted to pursue. That's when Rick confessed his secret. He was illiterate. The coach told Rick there was no way he'd be accepted at Cal State when they found out he couldn't read. His dream was completely out of the question. To make matters worse, the coach wasn't very good at keeping a secret. Word of Rick's illiteracy began to spread around to his classmates. Rick was too embarrassed to face everyone's judgment, so he dropped out. It's hard to imagine what life would have been like for Rick Ross if the school system hadn't failed him. Perhaps he could have achieved his dream of becoming the next Arthur Ashe. But as an 18-year-old, uneducated black man in Los Angeles in the 1970s, a life of crime now seemed like Rick's destiny. Coming up, Rick's desperation will lead to his first foray into the world of crime. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. After dropping out of high school halfway through his senior year in 1978, Rick Ross found himself lost and confused, and also partying. During the summer of his 18th year, Rick spent all day hanging out with his friends. He was still practicing at the tennis courts, but after losing his dreams of playing tennis for Cal State, he turned his focus to a second love, cars. Rick started to admire the nice cars his friends were driving. He and his best friend Ollie Newell started hanging out at gatherings called car hops, where people met up outdoors to party all night while showing off their wheels. Part of the appeal of cars was the fact that they seemed to attract women. Rick was always shy around girls, but once he saw how women flocked to the fancy cars that his friends were driving, 
he knew it might be his ticket into conversing with the opposite sex. Rick ended up enrolling in Los Angeles Trade Technical College, where he studied to work as a bookbinder. He enjoyed trade school much more than middle school or high school. He loved the fact that he was the one who got to decide what classes he would take. But even trade school required a lot of classwork, and Rick was still illiterate. Unsurprisingly, he preferred to spend his time talking cars with his friends instead of studying. It wasn't long before his brief dreams of becoming a bookbinder faded away. All he wanted was a lowrider and a girlfriend. Trade school may not have worked out, but the car hops proved to be Rick's entrance into a different kind of career. One day, Rick was approached by a friend who asked if he'd drive a stolen car to a chop shop for $50. Rick didn't give it much thought. He needed the cash. He'd sworn off becoming a gangbanger back in middle school, but that didn't mean he'd sworn off crime altogether. The next thing Rick knew, he was on the west side of Los Angeles, watching his friend boost a Cadillac Seville. Rick drove the Seville back to the chop shop, which was owned by a man named Dirty Benny. Rick was nervous the entire 13-mile drive. He expected to see the flashing red and blues behind him at any moment. But to Rick's good fortune, nothing happened. He turned over the stolen Seville to Dirty Benny and was given his $50. The next evening, he was doing it again. Rick would get paid $100 per car, worth a little less than $400 today, just for driving the stolen cars to the shop. It was the easiest money Rick had ever made. Soon, 18-year-old Rick was stealing cars full-time. It was a smooth operation and a nice payday and Rick never had a single run-in with the police. Two months after Rick started working at the chop shop in late 1978, Dirty Benny was arrested for grand theft auto. Rick saw this as his opportunity. When no one else was willing to step up to the task, Rick took over the shop and the car theft ring, overseeing the whole crew of car thieves. It was the first time he'd experienced success. The car theft ring lasted for roughly six months, then one night, Rick heard the sounds of a police helicopter. Rick looked outside and saw police everywhere. He immediately ran, but the police chopper spotted him. He was arrested and taken downtown. Thanks to an issue with the search warrant, Rick's case was dismissed. But he knew at that moment that his car thieving days were done. In early 1979, he closed his chop shop and decided that it was time to move on to something else. His old shop partner, San Jose Mike McLaurin, had another venture for Rick, cocaine. In the 1970s, cocaine was seen as a status symbol for the elites. It was a rich man's drug. The rich man, of course, meaning white people. Cocaine had virtually no presence in urban black America. Rick Ross grew up not knowing exactly what the drug was, except that it was expensive. In 1979, San Jose Mike, who played football for San Jose State University, came home from college on break. He invited Rick and Ollie Newell over to his parents' house and showed them what $50 of cocaine looked like. Rick stared at the drug and marveled. It was the first time he'd ever seen cocaine in real life. 
After watching the film Superfly, about a Harlem cocaine dealer, Rick already knew he wanted to be like the film's protagonist, Youngblood Priest. In Rick's eyes, no other black man was so successful and powerful. Now, here he was, face to face with the drug of all drugs. When he tried it for the first time, Rick didn't understand the appeal. He didn't feel the high Mike and Ollie claimed to feel. Instead, he started thinking about cocaine's business potential. Given his attention problems in school and his reaction to cocaine, it's pretty likely that Rick had undiagnosed ADHD. Instead of feeling a rush of energy from taking stimulants, people with ADHD experience the opposite effect, feeling calm, focused, and clear-headed. And in that moment, Rick saw the path ahead with perfect clarity. Stealing cars had been a decent way to hustle, but if he started selling cocaine, he could make a fortune. Inner city LA was an untapped market, and he was already formulating a plan to get the whole neighborhood hooked. As soon as they left Mike's house, Rick and Ollie talked through everything Mike had told them about dealing cocaine. This was their ticket to becoming rich. They just needed a hand to get things rolling. Rick and Ollie sold that first $50 baggie of cocaine to their friends line by line. It sold out fast. If this was going to turn into a real operation, they'd have to scale up. So Rick and Ollie boosted a car, sold it to a chop shop for $300, and invested that money in more cocaine from San Jose Mike. The money he made from that stash gave Rick the high of a lifetime. Eventually, Rick took some of his cocaine to a drug dealer and pimp named Keith Hatter, who worked a territory along Figueroa Street. Rick had worked for Keith for a time, banging on hotel doors to let the customers know when their time was up. Now, Rick wondered if Keith wanted to work for him. Keith and his brother Pip were Hoover Street Crips. Rick was wary of getting involved with the Crips, but Ollie was a member of the gang himself. He convinced Rick this was about business, not gangbanging. The Crips' territory and workers were too valuable to ignore. So the decision was made. Keith agreed to start selling cocaine alongside his weed and PCP. By the end of 1979, word had made its way through South Central that affordable cocaine was being sold on the corners. In the early days, Rick and Ollie would stand on the streets themselves, selling the supply they got from San Jose Mike. Within a few months, business was booming, and once again, it was time to expand. One of the first recruits was Norman Tillman, Rick's old friend from the tennis team. Norman had just come back from serving in the Marine Corps and was in desperate need of a job. Rick immediately introduced him to the art of drug dealing. Rick extended the same offer to his friend Cornell Ward. Cornell had grown up dreaming of playing professional football, but he got into some trouble in college and was kicked off the team. When Cornell came home and ran into Rick around town, he told him he'd screwed up. Rick offered him an opportunity to make even more money than the football stars. By Rick's admission, the main factor that made his drug dealing enterprise take off so quickly was his affiliation with the Crips. Ollie already had a fearsome reputation within the gang. His nickname was Killer. Rick's cousin, Avita, belonged to the Cribettes, the affiliated all-female gang. 
The father of Evita's children was a powerful leader within the Crips. All this to say, Rick had street cred behind him before he even opened up shop. Rick also had a reputation for carrying a weapon at all times. The memory of having a gun pointed at him as a middle schooler was always in the back of his mind. If he ever found himself with a gun in his face again, he'd be prepared to defend himself. No one was going to mess with Freeway Rick. As the months progressed, Rick and his crew were selling $3,000 to $4,000 worth of cocaine a day. A basic inflation calculator would adjust that to between $10,000 and $13,000 today. It was steady success, but not big enough. Rick's goal was to sell $10,000 a day, or around $34,000 today. He had no idea that at the height of his empire, he'd be selling between two and $3 million a day. The Freeway Boys, as Rick and his crew became known, were selling within a market that wasn't already saturated. Most of the dealers in the neighborhood sold PCP or marijuana. The market for cocaine was ripe for the taking. In the late 70s and early 80s, the government didn't take cocaine very seriously due to its reputation as an elite party drug. This lackadaisical approach allowed Colombian cartels to flood the U.S. with the drug. There was such an influx of cocaine that the price of a gram of coke plummeted from $600 in 1982 to $400 in 1984. But that was still quite a high price for people in low-income neighborhoods, like where Rick Ross grew up. In the early years, the cocaine trade was mostly focused in New York City and Miami. In Los Angeles, there was only one major dealer who sold cocaine, Thomas Tootie Reese. For roughly two decades, Tootie was the reigning gangster in the Southland. He started out selling marijuana and heroin, but in the 70s, he was finally introduced to cocaine, the champagne of drugs. Tootie was the king of cocaine in the 70s, but the quantities he was moving seemed laughably small today. One story relates how he held up a man with a shotgun just to buy a single pound of coke. Despite being one of the most respected gangsters in L.A., he never figured out how to make the drug catch on. But Rick Ross found the solution. Around the time that Rick and his partners started dealing in 1979, a new form of cocaine was becoming popular, crack. When powder cocaine is boiled together with baking soda, it forms a solid, smokable rock. As opposed to snorting cocaine, smoking crack allows it to hit the brain much quicker and give users their high almost immediately. But the high doesn't last for long, between 5 and 15 minutes. This leaves the user wanting more. Rick was shocked when he first saw a tiny rock of crack cocaine, about the size of a match head, which was worth $50. He knew right away that this form of the drug could make him even richer than powder cocaine. Rick had heard people complain about having to find bottles to make the crack themselves. So sometime around 1980, he decided he would cook it on his own and sell the finished product on the street. It became known as Ready Rock. No longer did desperate addicts have to scrounge around looking for supplies to cook their own crack. They could track down Rick and his boys and have a rock in their hands within seconds. 
The appeal of this for Rick was the profit margins. He was able to take a single gram of cocaine, worth about $60, mix it up with baking soda, and cook it into crack rocks. Then he'd sell those rocks in individual baggies for anywhere from $2 to $20 a rock, depending on the size. That initial $60 investment would sell for a total of $100 to $150. No one else had ever conceived of selling crack pre-cooked. Rick had the market cornered by default. With the success of Ready Rock, Rick was able to leave the street corners behind and leave the grunt work to his dealers. He went from being a corner boy to a distributor in no time at all. Rick realized that many of the customers he was selling to had started to buy larger quantities and sell the drug themselves. An entire distribution network sprung up on its own, the product of sheer human ingenuity. Rick's mind was racing. He knew what he had on his hands. It was only a matter of time before Rick Ross became a kingpin. But if he wanted to keep expanding, he'd need more product to sell and his new supplier would threaten to bring the whole empire crashing down. Up next, we'll take a closer look at where Rick's cocaine was coming from. San Jose Mike was only one link in a much bigger chain. Now back to the story. How does one high school dropout earn a fortune off a drug that was essentially non-existent a year or two prior without any major competition? Rick Ross's introduction to cocaine came from his friend in San Jose. But by 1981, his main source was his old teacher and tennis coach, Mr. F. According to Rick's memoir, his name was Mr. Foster. But in journalist Gary Webb's book, Dark Alliance, the man's name was Mr. Fisher. For our purposes, we'll just call him Mr. F. As Rick's cocaine orders increased, so did Mr. F's nerves. He was just a middling supplier, selling on the side to pay for his own habit. He was becoming uncomfortable with the sheer amount of product Rick was asking for. As a man seeking to create an empire, Rick grew frustrated. Mr. F decided it was time to introduce Rick directly to his supplier a man by the name of Ivan Arguelas. It was a meeting that would change the course of American history. In late 1981 or early 1982, Rick and Ali met at Mr. F's house. Rick already had contacts around the city, but he was interested to see what Mr. F's man could do. When Ivan Arguelas and his brother-in-law Henry Corrales arrived, Rick guessed from their broken English that they were from Central or South America. Rick showed Yvonne the cash he had on him, $45,000. That would buy about 16 ounces of cocaine at the average price of $2,800 an ounce. After the men counted the money, they gave Rick and Ollie the goods. One handshake later, the deal was done. Yvonne offered to become Rick's main supplier. Instead of dealing with Mr. F., he should just call him directly. Mr. F was upcharging a bit for each ounce he sold to Rick. By cutting out the middleman and dealing with Yvonne directly, Rick was getting a better deal. And Yvonne was a man of his word. He provided Rick with top-of-the-line cocaine at an unbeatable price. In turn, Rick was able to sell larger quantities on the streets and reap in the profits. Soon, Rick and Ollie were making $250 to $300,000 a day. 
life was good, and it was all thanks to Yvonne. But Rig didn't have any idea what he'd gotten himself into. Yvonne Arguelles was a Nicaraguan exile living in Los Angeles. Not much is known about Yvonne before his dealings with Rick. What seems to be clear, though, is that for eight months, Rick and Yvonne had a flourishing relationship. He always delivered. He kept his prices low. And then, one day in 1982, Yvonne stopped answering Rick's calls. Yvonne had disappeared without a trace. Rick needed product, and he needed it fast. He started asking around for other sources, and he was propositioned by a supplier in Miami. The idea to get his supply from a different state had never crossed Rick's mind. It seemed risky. But the friend who made the offer, Chinese Dave, sweetened the deal when he mentioned that he'd be paying around $40,000 for a kilo, or roughly $1,100 an ounce. Rick was used to paying up to $2,000 an ounce. This deal was too good to pass up, especially since Yvonne was MIA. Rick, Ali, and a few others flew out to Florida to meet with Chinese Dave and his contacts. Rick never mentioned who the contacts were, but given the Miami location, we can probably assume they were connected to a Colombian cartel. To Rick's complete surprise, the deal went off without a hitch. He bought 20 kilos of cocaine, but he had to give two of them to Dave as a tax. Rick was annoyed, but it was all part of doing business. Those remaining 18 kilos could still make him a profit of $2 million. Around the time 22-year-old Rick returned from Miami in 1982, he finally met his drug-dealing idol, L.A.'s reigning kingpin, Tootie Reese. But by the time Rick met him, Tootie was just an aging gangster on his way out. Tootie had begun to use his own supply, and Rick knew that could only mean trouble. By the end of the meeting, which Rick says didn't last very long, Rick knew he would never do business with Tootie. Rather, he knew he would eclipse Tootie's status in the annals of gangster history, and he wouldn't be wrong about that. Not long after the Miami deal, Rick experienced his first major setback. Two of his men got caught up in a police chase that started at Rick's house. When Rick returned home, he saw police everywhere. They found hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of ready rock inside the house. Rick was devastated and nervous. Rick wasn't arrested, but he worried about what his crew would say under pressure. He decided the best thing he could do was hire the finest drug lawyer in Los Angeles to represent them. His name was Alan Fenster, and he did such a good job getting Rick's men off the hook he was soon hired as Rick's own private lawyer. The confiscation of the Ready Rock cost Rick quite a bit. Thankfully, he still had enough money to make another deal with his new Miami connections. At the next deal, Rick bought 20 kilos for $600,000, and this time, he didn't have to give two to Chinese Dave. After that initial setback, business continued to boom. Rick's reputation within the community was growing. He would give cash to his friends if they needed it, help pay for groceries and rent. He even helped pay for a friend's mother's open-heart surgery. He loved helping the people around him. One day in 1983, Rick got a visit from Henry Corrales, the man who was with Yvonne when Rick first met him. 
Rick was shocked to see him. It had been months since he'd heard from Yvonne. Rick asked where they'd been. In broken English, Henry told Rick that Yvonne had been shot in the spine by his own wife. He was in the hospital, alive but paralyzed, never to walk again. Rick was stunned. Henry took him and Ollie to see Yvonne in the hospital, where he was stuck in a motorized wheelchair. He needed Henry to help him drink from a straw. The meeting, however, wasn't about sympathy or well wishes. It was business. Rick and Ollie told Yvonne about the new deals they'd been making, buying more product for a lower price. Rick did, however, leave out the fact that it was coming from Miami. Yvonne understood the position that Rick was in. Business was business. He told Rick to let him make a few phone calls. The next day, Yvonne offered Rick 300 kilos at $34,000 a kilo, a bit more expensive than what he was getting from Miami, but in an exponentially larger quantity. The cocaine had a yellowish tint to it, and it quickly earned the name Piss Yellow. Rick instantly became suspicious of the drug's quality. He asked to test it before things went forward. Rick and Ollie had some other guys test the sample, and it seemed to check out. Despite the odd color, the product was solid. Rick and the Nicaraguans were back in business, and the drug market was about to be blown wide open. In 1983, Tootie Reese, the original kingpin of L.A., sold two kilos of cocaine to undercover DEA agents. Those two kilos sent Tootie away for 35 years. With Tootie gone, Rick was at the top of his game. Heading into 1984, Rick was moving 50 to 100 kilos of cocaine a week through dozens of crack houses around the city. There may have been other small dealers pushing cocaine and crack, but with Rick's connections and the quality of his supply, he had the vast majority of the city smoking out of the palm of his hand. Rick claims that his leadership came about as happenstance. People just seemed to flock to him. Even Rick's partner, Ollie Newell, knew that Rick's position was above him. Part of it was that Rick never touched his own product. He never got high, he never got drunk. He was all business, and every day was a hustle. He continued to climb with each passing day. As kingpin of Los Angeles, it was only a matter of time before Rick caught the eye of some important people. As it turns out, he had been observed for some time by one person in particular, and he was ready to meet Rick face to face. One day in 1984, Henry Corrales met up with Rick and told him to come with him for a ride. As Rick walked towards Henry's car, he noticed a familiar face sitting in the front seat. Rick had seen him during his deals with Henry, but the two never really spoke to one another. All Rick ever received was a simple nod or hand wave. When Rick got into the car, the third man finally introduced himself. He was Oscar Danilo Blandone, a Nicaraguan drug supplier with cocaine connections in Colombia, Mexico, and Nicaragua. He wanted to become Rick's main source. He promised to help make him a kingpin outside of Los Angeles, all across the United States. Rick liked the way Blandone talked, but little did he know, Blandone's ties went far deeper than the drug underworld. By shaking hands with Blandone, he was making a deal with the devil.
Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Next week, we'll explore how Rick Ross's meeting and relationship with Danilo Blandon would ultimately lead to his downfall and imprisonment. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Joe Guerra and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.